And I want to talk this morning about the specific calling that the Lord has given, given to every believer. Every single person who claims the name of Christ and has put their confidence in Christ has spiritual assignments from the Lord. If you're a believer this morning, if you're a Christian, if you say, I put my faith in Christ, I trust in Him for my salvation, for my eternal life, God has specific assignments for you. Now, one is very broad, and this is the most obvious one. Uh, it has an endless number of applications because Jesus told us to go into the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. So there are a lot of different ways that we can do that. Any Christian can fulfill the Great Commission. That's why Jesus gave it to us. He didn't give it just to the pastors and the missionaries and the apostles. He gave it to every single believer to go into the world and preach the gospel. And you don't have to go to Kenya or France or Italy or Japan to do that. If everybody went to Kenya and France and Italy and Japan, there wouldn't be anybody here, right? So some of us are here. Some of us are there. Some people come to America to be missionaries. It's our job to spread the gospel. And wherever you are this week, whether it's with family members or friends or at work or at the mall or, or whatever the case may be, as we go out into culture, our responsibility is to take the gospel to the world. That's our broad calling. That's the one that everyone has that doesn't deviate for any believer. We all have that mark on us this morning. But the second assignment is much more personal. And it's much more specific because it involves the Holy Spirit giving us individually responsibility that matches our knowledge and our background and our experiences and our spiritual gifting. Now, that can be as common as something that happened to me in 1984, a full-time calling to ministry where the Lord said, this is what I want you to do for your life. I want you to be a pastor. So I changed my major the next day and uh, started preparing for seminary, went to seminary, got back into ministry when I got home, and, and things went from there. So some people have a full-time calling to ministry. But if you don't have a full-time calling, there are still ways that God gives us special assignments. And sometimes these are related to the experiences that we've had. For instance, if you have suffered through the trauma of cancer, you're a cancer survivor, God will bring people into your life who are dealing with the same thing because you know how to minister to them better than somebody that doesn't have cancer. If your family has been through divorce, God often will put people in your life that you can minister to as they go through the difficulty of divorce or as their children are divorced because you know how to speak that language. You know how to say to them, I know what you're going through and mean it. You know how to relate to them in terms of their, their sadness and, and their discouragement and the relationship that's changed because of divorce. God gives us specific ways to minister based on the experiences that we've had. And in doing that, he deliberately chooses us to use us in powerful ways. He wants to use us to show his love and his mercy to people. He wants us to be able to talk to people with conviction and, and, and call out uh, things that are going on where they're stuck in sin or, or to speak truth and love and encourage somebody to, to draw them to Christ. Many different ways that God gives us these assignments. Now, the interesting thing about the book of Acts is it opens with the first assignment and then shows us numerous examples of the other kinds of assignments. So Acts 1 opens with Jesus ascending up to heaven. And before he goes, he says, you're my disciples. Go into the world now. Tell people what you've seen. 
John says at the start of 1 John 1, that which we have seen and we have heard, now we declare to you. That's the whole point of evangelizing. It's not that you have to go through the rote of some system and say, well, I've got to follow this, 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 this. It's telling people, what have I seen and heard? We praise the Lord this morning, right? Some of you, very vocal. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. All right, well, now it's our job to tell people, not just to do it in this room. We have to go tell people, the Lord's changed my life. I'm different now. I used to be this, now I'm this. My whole mindset's changed. So that's what Acts 1 opens with. Go into the world. You're my disciples. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. But then we see example after example after example in the early church of specific times where God gave the opportunity to certain individuals to minister in a certain way. We saw the apostles at Pentecost all speaking different languages to to present the gospel to people from different nations. We see Peter and John be arrested and go before the council and say, we're not going to stop declaring the name of the Lord. We see Stephen speaking before he's martyred and giving this great sermon about Jesus Christ. We see Philip going into the desert and meeting the Ethiopian eunuch. Example after example of example of specific jobs that were given to individuals. Now, Acts 13 opens with this same type of example. And what we see at this point is that the persecution seems to have subsided. We're not going to hear anything about persecution for a number of chapters. And that's especially true because God has changed the heart of the leading opponent of the gospel. God has transformed Saul's life so that he is now Paul and he is now the leading evangelist to the Gentiles. The power of God, we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 12, has been on display. Peter's released from jail in the middle of the night. The church rejoices. Herod then dies, and the gospel continues to spread. And it goes north. It goes about 100 miles north to Antioch. We'll look at the map in a couple minutes. And it goes up into Syria. And now it's about to advance into the Mediterranean and then up into Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, and to go over to Greece and go over to Italy and to spread northeast. The gospel now is starting to move. So where it's been localized, really, for the first 11 chapters of the book of Acts, now you're not going to be able to stop it. And it begins its spread throughout the world. Let's pick up the text, Acts chapter 13. Thank you for bringing your Bibles and turning. Let's start in verse 1. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manon, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. When they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent up by the Holy Spirit, they, were, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole isle and as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bargesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. Kind of a strange combination of people there. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, 
you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. He's very politically correct at this point, right? Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? A little reference to John 1 there. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul, verse 12, believed what he saw, what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, I want to show you on a map, just for a minute, what we're talking about here, because I don't have my laser this morning. If you look at it, you will see that this is Jerusalem right here. Antioch is way up here, right where you see those red arrows, and they sail over to this island of Cyprus. The first town is called Salamis. This town on the western side is called Paphos. So if you'd give me the next map, please. You can see this a little bit more clearly. You can see how Cyprus sits out in the middle of the Mediterranean. So they've gone up to Antioch, which is way at the north, that northern city above the yellow box, and they were there for a while. The church starts to grow, and then Paul and Barnabas get a calling, and they're sent out to Cyprus. And we're going to look in the coming weeks at the, at the latter part of this trip. So this is the first time they're going out on what is called a missionary journey. But before they go, thank you. Before they go, I want you to see uh, back in verse 2 what was happening prior to them coming. It says that while they're in Antioch, that these men who are prophets and teachers, they're, they're set-apart people, they've got a special gifting from the Lord. It says that they were ministering not to the church, it says they were ministering to the Lord. And that's an odd phrase because we usually think that the Lord ministers to us, right? That, boy, I really need the Lord to minister, or I'm going to pray for that brother or sister that the Lord would minister to them. We call what we do in, in church this ministry. But here it says that these men were ministering to the Lord. And the phrase there means that they were in prayer, they were teaching God's word, and they were serving others in need. Now, that, that seems obvious. That's what we'd call ministry. But here, the Holy Spirit differentiates that these things were being done as unto the Lord. Do you know that when we come to worship and when we come to serve Him and when we draw close to the Lord, that what we are doing is we are ministering to the Lord? And that changes the perception of what we're doing, right? This is not just about us this morning. It's not just, well, I'm a little discouraged, a little sleepy, and it's rained last night, and I'm kind of tired, and I just need a boost. That's wonderful. That's what church can do. But as we're here, as you were just singing, great is thy faithfulness, oh, God, my Father, what a, what a great hymn that is. We were ministering to the Lord. We were exalting Him and praising Him. And, and, and if I can go so far as to say, we were encouraging Him. Not that he needs encouragement, he's God, but he's blessed by that. His heart, his heart is glad because he sees people down here in this room praising God and saying, glory to God, your name is great, you're exalted, you'll never fail us, pardon for sin and a peace that endures. Oh, it's so wonderful. We're ministering to the Lord. It's interesting to see that with all that was going on in Antioch and the, the rapid expansion of the church, that, that these men, these church leaders, they weren't running around developing new programs. They weren't sitting around in meetings saying, well, let's figure out clever ways to, to draw people to church. Instead, they're quiet before the Lord. 
and they're set apart and they're sanctifying their hearts and they're ministering to the Lord and they're waiting on His help and His guidance. We're called to do everything in our life as unto the Lord. How are we going to do that unless we are in line with Him in this way? How does any church leader able to quote unquote, and I hate using the word because it sounds uh, too self-centered. How is any church leader able to lead the church if he's not hearing what the Lord says? So as they're doing this, interestingly, look at verse 2. It says that the Holy Spirit speaks to them. Now, we're not given clarity on what this looked like or what it sounded like. We don't know if the Holy Spirit just clearly impressed something on their hearts together or whether it was audibly discernible, like I'm talking to you as they were meeting, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, set apart Barnabas and Saul. Or whether the whole congregation heard it. Maybe they were in in congregation together and the Holy Spirit in the midst of the meeting said this. We have no idea what it was like. What we do know is that there was no mistaking the message. The Lord says, set Paul and Barnabas apart from me because I have a specific work of ministry that I'm assigning them to. Now, think about how bittersweet that was. They have been so uh, encouraged and strengthened in their their faith and in their doctrine by these two men, and now they've got to put their hands on them and pray for them and, and let them go. And while they're so excited that the gospel now is going into the Mediterranean and the gospel is going to go up to Turkey, that, 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 that the gospel is expanding. How sad was that? As they watched their friends go away, as they watched their friends go to different ministry. Barnabas, who's called the son of encouragement, always a strength, always the one with a pat on the back, always the one with a word of encouragement, always the one who would say, let me pray for you. Let me build you up. Here, I found a passage of Scripture. I was thinking of you last night. Let, let me just give you this passage. Just want just to encourage you in your faith. You know, every church needs a few Barnabases. There's no one that's more influential in a church body than someone who continuously and sincerely encourages people personally and spiritually. There are far too many people, not in this congregation, praise the Lord, who, who want to who just drag you down who want to be a, a depressant to you, who, who want to just, oh, well, isn't the Lord great? Well, yeah. He is. Yeah, he is. I read Psalms, and I, I don't know, David was really discouraged. Ever been around people like that? You just go, I just need to walk away from you for a while. Be an encouragement. When the Lord encourages you, encourage somebody else. When you want to praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Listen, the person next to you may be struggling. They may be here just, they were lucky to get here this morning. And they see you sincerely now. Praise the Lord. Oh, the Lord's good. Great is His faithfulness. And you know what that does? That that rubs off on them. Somebody who walked in and just, oh, 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 it rained. It rained. I left my sunroof open last night. So you know what kind of morning I'm having. They can walk in, you know. And listen, we can be an encouragement to them. So Barnabas was the son of encouragement. And then you've got Paul. 
every day proving the power of a transformed life. And what a great teacher and apologist and a defender of the faith. No church would want to lose a guy like that. Just his presence was amazing. How hard would it be to say goodbye to them? And yet the Holy Spirit, look at verse 4, makes it very clear that it's him who has sent them. And they begin what we now call this first missionary journey. And this is no small thing. The gospel's really not been heard apart from maybe the few who went back to their countries at Pentecost. But the gospel's not been heard in many parts of the world at this point. And they would undoubtedly be ridiculed by people who saw this kind of as an unintelligent farce, as people who kind of made this up, especially when you compare it to the power at that point in history of Gnosticism, which was the belief that knowledge is everything. So just on face value, now you're going to come. These two guys, these two Jews are going to come with this message about a God that would sacrifice himself, that would come down for, for sinners and would go to a cross and then would rise again from the dead and enlightened people, quote unquote, are going to look at that and go, you got to be kidding, right? No, no, no. It's not about some God you've made up coming down and dying on a cross. Come on, seriously. Knowledge is everything. You've got to just feel it inside yourself and you've got to self-actualize and, and be the God that you are and, and, and kind of declare your own destiny kind of thing. Paul and Barnabas do not have an easy task. They're going to go and they're going to declare the name of Jesus Christ. You know, this, this Gnostic kind of attitude, this enlightened attitude, it is still true today. If you look around our culture, there is a certain elitist mindset, particularly within the moral and political liberal bias, that constantly seeks to discredit and demean Christianity. The criticism of us, the criticism of religion, especially those who, who believe in Jesus Christ, is that we are simple-minded, that, that what we're doing is just a spiritual crutch because we're either not intelligent enough to know sound reason or because we want to legislate how everybody lives. And because of that, we're viewed as not enlightened enough and not tolerant enough in our minds. Now, don't get discouraged by that. And I'll tell you what, in the next six months heading up in the election, you're going to hear it even more. Don't get discouraged by it. Because it's not true. And also, we have to see in the text that there are many people whose hearts are going to be drawn to the gospel. If we will stand firm for Christ, there are going to be people that are convicted by the Holy Spirit of their need to repent from sin and to trust in Christ as Savior. So in our ministry, especially in these last days, listen now, we have to be very careful that we don't underestimate or even distrust the power of the gospel message. Do not underestimate the power of news about Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how people view us or what alternatives seem more appealing to people or, or what excuses they may offer. The fact is, Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is the power of Jesus Christ unto salvation. It changes lives. It transfers people from darkness to life, from death to sin, uh, from sin to life. So the instruction that Paul gives to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he says to him, as the days grow shorter, people are going to be more drawn to what stokes their egos, what gives them soft solutions about how they can live 
and kind of be free from guilt in their consciences without any spiritual accountability. And Paul, in response to that, look at the text here. When he's confronted by this Elymas, he gives a very straightforward, very blunt uh, response. He does the same thing with Timothy. When Timothy's kind of whining and saying, the culture's too strong and I don't want to do, Paul says, I'll tell you what to do. You preach the word. You do the work of ministry. You get busy about sound doctrine. You endure hardship. You, you become an evangelist. Don't succumb to the trends of the day and don't soften your message. Keep on point and tell people the truth in love. Because if the church alters that instruction, it's essentially disobeying the word of God. And when we disobey the word of God, there is no way that our ministry can be effective. In these last days, if we don't preach the word and stand firm and tell people about the love of Christ and have sound doctrine, we will be ineffective in calling them to Christ. Now, that does not mean hit them over the head and drag them away. And it does not mean come out and blast them and be judgmental and say, you're going to hell and Christ is coming back. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Coercion and criticism rarely work. He says, be a loving and patient teacher. Speak the truth. Be honest. With joy, show the hope and the promise of the gospel. That's what Paul does here. And I want you to see that there are two responses that are negative to that. And these go hand in hand because the enemy is behind both of them. We saw one, turn back page or two, back in chapter 8. Remember this passage, this was a couple months ago, when Simon the magician, he wanted to purchase the ability to lay hands. Remember, they were laying hands and the Holy Spirit was coming upon people. And Simon watches it and he says, oh, I want to lay hands too. I want that gift. Let me buy that. How much do you want? Let me pull out my wallet and purchase that from you. See, this is one of the enemy's favorite tactics against Christianity. He loves to try to cheapen the integrity of the gospel and discredit it in some way. In chapter 8, he tries to make it seem like some trick, some, some illusion that could be co-opted for the right amount of money. Now, there are three primary reasons why he does this. And let's go ahead and talk about them because we're going to see them through the rest of the book. So three primary reasons why the enemy reacts this way and responds this way and, and some of the ways that he promotes and exploits uh, things in our time. Number one is he highlights any moral inconsistencies or failures by a believer, especially someone who is well-known. And in doing that, he tries to prove not that one person has fallen, but that because one person has fallen, all Christians must be hypocrites. It is damaging to the ministry. It's damaging to the gospel when a prominent Christian falls into sin. But just because one person falls doesn't mean we're all hypocrites. There are some that love the Lord. There are some that want to follow the Lord. But he is going to always highlight inconsistencies to discredit the Lord which means we have to live very, very carefully. Second way is he entices people to scream about intolerance every time a biblical worldview is offered. Anytime we say, well, this is what the Word of God says. Anytime we can say, well, Scripture says this, 
he gets people to scream and march and say, see, there's the proof that Christianity is intolerant. What is ironic about that is he never shows how openly critical and judgmental the world is about what we believe. The media just completely ignores that. People can criticize Christianity up and down, but when we not criticize people, but make a statement about what the Bible says, oh, you Christians, you're intolerant. You fundamentalists, you, you just, oh, look at you. There you go again. You just, you just don't accept anybody. And Jesus is love and he loves everybody and he accepts everybody and you Christians don't want anybody. That's the enemy's tactic. And then the third one is he keeps putting out the idea day after day that Christians are hopelessly out of touch with the real world. And we don't fit with how life is now and that anyone who would really want to live by the Bible's instructions is weird. They're an aberration to society. And if we weren't so mad at them, we should feel sorry for them. That's the reason why people are so critical of someone like a Tim Tebow. Now, you can say whatever you want about his quarterbacking skills. But they cannot fathom why people would respect him. They cannot fathom why why he would be outspoken. So what do they do? They go after his ability as a quarterback. Well, he's obviously not as good as the other quarterbacks. But, but what they're really trying to do is mock him and say, look, it's because he's this spiritual anomaly. The media pushes that fringe mentality by promoting the concept at every opportunity. They'll do whatever they can to establish those of us who love the Lord See if you've ever heard these words as fanatical, militant and determined to convert everybody against their will. And again, there's such irony in that because there is a world religion that actually fits that profile and it's not driven by love. It's driven by hate. But the media ignores it. And when we say something about it, they say, well, you just misunderstand. Now, that's the enemy. And that's all around us. And I want you to be very on guard how, how subtly and, and openly that's communicated every single day. And then ask yourself, why? Why is there such resentment and resistance if we're the ones who are so wrong? Why bother to discredit the Bible and Jesus and those who love him if we're just a bunch of confused idiots? Why bother? And notice that the criticism never comes with a solution. It never comes with a, well, yeah, you're dumb, but, but here's the answer. Here's, here's what makes sense. At least when we present the word of God, we say there's hope. There's an answer. God loves you. God wants to forgive you. God sacrificed for you. God promises you eternal life if you will trust in him. That's all you have to do is put your confidence in him, turn from your sin and trust him. We offer a solution. The Bible offers a solution. Culture never offers a solution. It just criticizes and walks away. Now what the text shows us, look back at chapter 13, is that the attack almost always comes when a person's heart is being opened up at faith in Christ. Why is that? That's because the enemy doesn't want to lose his grip on anybody. And he knows, and here's how you can argue for eternal security, one of the ways. He knows that once the Lord 
puts his hand and his mark on the person that the devil can never have him back. He knows once salvation happens, once the person puts their trust in Christ, that that person is out of the equation. He can't grab them anymore. He can bug them and tempt them and try them and give them all kinds of attack. But he can't have them because God has secured and sealed them forever. So he wants to try to grab people and keep them in bondage before they come out of bondage permanently. And that's where we see the other response to the gospel in verse 8. Here's another magician. And this one's not open to the gospel at all. In fact, he sees a third magician. Apparently, there were a lot of magicians running around the world at that point. He sees this third magician whose name is Bar-Jesus in verse 6. And he is with a guy named Sergius Paulus. And they want to know more about the word of God. Just as a little side note to our, our statement a couple minutes ago about Gnosticism and the culture and the attempt to discredit Christianity. Notice, and we've been looking at this in our Bible study methods class, everything that the Holy Spirit puts in is intentional. Notice how he says about Sergius Paulus in verse 8. Let me see if I can find it. I'm sorry, it's not in verse 8. It's in verse 7. Who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. Now, we'd assume that because the proconsul was the governor. He was like a governor of a state. The Roman Empire was divided into certain regions, and Sergius Paulus was one of the governors, so to speak. So we would imagine that he's probably pretty savvy. Politically, personally, intellectually, he's got it going. The Romans didn't put slouches in positions. It wasn't like Chicago politics where everything was crooked and just grab the guy and do what you want. They, they actually elected people who knew what they were doing. So Sergius Paulus was a capable guy. We know that just from his job, but the Holy Spirit includes this extra detail, and he says, oh, by the way, this Sergius Paulus guy, he was intelligent. That's a subtle but direct rebuttal to the charge that Christians are naive and gullible. Here you've got the most intelligent, capable evangelist of all time, and he's speaking to an intelligent Roman governor who has requested that Paul and Barnabas will come and talk about Jesus Christ. But then there's this guy, Elymas, and, and he sets himself up against the whole thing. And he's trying hard to get the proconsul not to believe in Christ. The irony of this guy is that his name, Elymas, in Aramaic, means a wise man. So you got a bunch of wise people running around. Maybe we should say a bunch of smart Alex running around. Paul, who's capable and filled with the Spirit and intelligent, and Sergius Paulus, who's intelligent and has risen to a high place in his job, and then Elymas, who's called a wise man, but isn't really a wise man. How do we know that? Look at verse 8. We see the arrogant reasoning in his mind, and it's the reason behind the enemy's fall and how he attacks our faith. Remember that Satan fell from heaven because he got proud. He elevated himself. He sat there one day and said, why would I follow God, even though he created me? Why would I follow God when I can try to overthrow God? So he challenged God's authority and his rule. And that pride has never stopped. The enemy today is just as arrogant and just as delusional. He thinks he's smarter than God. He thinks he's in control. So his attack on God's children will always be on our mind. He will always try to corrupt our mind 
and tell us, and he's been doing this since Genesis 3, that my ways are better than God's ways. If you will just listen to me, and you will just do what makes you happy, and you will just ignore what God is saying, I promise you that it will be wonderful, and you'll be happier than you've ever been. This is why God consistently throughout Scripture says that I have the message of truth, and I'm in control. When man rose up at Babel and started to build a tower and say, we're going to ascend to God, and we're going to be God, the same lie that Satan had. What did God do? He confused them so they couldn't understand each other. He said, I'll show you how intelligent you are. Let's everybody talk a different language and nobody understands each other. And we'll see how well you do on building that whole tower. And then he reverses it at Pentecost. When nobody can understand each other, God gives the apostles the ability to speak their languages so everybody can hear the gospel at once. You see, it's no coincidence that Jesus is called the Word in flesh. It's no coincidence that he's called the way, the truth, and the life. Because 1 Corinthians 3 says, the wisdom is the world, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God, and he catches the wise in their craftiness. Man's so cocky. Man thinks so much, oh, I'm just so much smarter than God. I don't need God. Why would I need somebody to tell me what to do? I know what to do. I'm good. And God says, you have no idea how ridiculous you sound. The greatest wisdom of the world is utter nonsense to God. Stephen Hawking this morning, who thinks he's just the greatest thing on the face of the earth, and that he's figured out all this stuff that I could never possibly understand. He's certainly smarter than me. I'll give him that. God looks at him and says, that's, that's just nonsense. That's nonsense. The best offense and the best defense against the world's wisdom is always the truth of the Word of God. It's always Jesus Christ. Look back at verses 9 to 11. Let's draw this to a close. Paul is described here as filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, why does the Spirit remind us of that again? Again, no detail is accidental. What the Holy Spirit is doing is he is saying, I want you to be ensured in your thinking that this is not Paul's words, this is not his bias, this is not his judgmentalism. This is not his anger. These words were coming from me because he was full of me. So when Paul is very direct in saying, Elymas, you are full of deceit. You are lying. You are opposing the word of God. He says that by the word of the Spirit. Now that's an important principle that we have to practice. But we have to handle it very carefully so we don't fall into pride. When someone around you is in sin, let's say this morning, some of you, I don't know this, but let me just say it, that maybe you're here this morning and you have a child that's away from the Lord. I mean, rebelling, causing you grief, you're in anguish about it right now, you can barely think about anything else. That child's away from the Lord. Or there's a spouse, your spouse is, is in chronic sin and you know it. 
and they're struggling and they don't want to repent of it and it's driving a wedge between you or there's a person that you're close to and they're in sin and you're broken by it. When they are in sin, listen now, it is very important that we speak the truth to them and that we lovingly challenge them to stop living in sin. And we don't do that as people who say, well, I don't have any sin in my life. I'm I'm perfect. There's not a person in this room that's perfect. We're perfect in God's sight because he's declared us that way, but we still have sin. So we can't get up in people's grills and say, hey, I'm better than you. I can tell you what to do. You need to stop living in sin, and I'm your judge and jury. Remember again that Paul was filled with and guided by the Spirit. And his goal in challenging Elymas is not to knock him down, but to lift him up and say, you are caught in sin, but God can rescue you. You're caught in sin. Some of us need to say to somebody, you're caught in sin. You're you're stuck. You need to get out of it. As I've gotten older in counseling, as I've gotten farther along in ministry, I've gotten a little bit more impatient. Shock for me, I know. I've gotten a little more impatient with counseling when somebody sits there and says, oh, I've never been happier cheating on my wife. I don't, I don't have six sessions to tell them they're in sin. I'm just going to tell them in the first five minutes. There's, there's not time for us to dance around the issue. But be careful that you don't get caught up in pride. Because this is really an attack on righteousness. Paul could have taken this personally. He could have been aggravated. He could have said, why are you opposing our ministry? I'm effective. I'm a great evangelist. I have a calling from God. Why, why, are, you, why are you standing up to me, Elymas? Who, who do you think you are? I'm the Apostle Paul. But he doesn't take it personally. He keeps focused on the nature of the attack on righteousness. I tell people this all the time. When you are opposed or criticized for your faith, don't take it personally because it's not. Some of you really struggle. Well, I've got a sister and she's critical of me and and she's not a believer. That's always the second detail, but, but she's critical of me. And I say to them, it's not about you. The criticism is not to you. The criticism against Jesus Christ. It's darkness and light. So, so don't sit there and get all worked up that it's some kind of a personal affront to you. Jesus said, when you stand for me, people oppose that because of me. So don't get distracted about the personal attacks. It's not personal. It's personal against the Lord. Paul and Barnabas had been set apart, and that means that they're on the front line of the spiritual battle. When God gives you an assignment, guess what? You are on the front line. You're not hanging back like the generals on the horse going, I'm going to stay out of of range here of those bullets. Go, man, go! No, when God gives you an assignment, you're right up there on the front line. But here's the cool thing. You're also on the front line to see the radical transformation of lives. Don't focus on the bullets whizzing by. Focus on the fact that God's about to do a work. I'm sure with Elymas that Paul couldn't help be reminded of his own life. Elymas is struck blind and he's stumbling around looking for somebody to lead him. And and don't you know that Paul had to be thinking back to that day on the road to Damascus when Jesus confronted him. And he thought about his own blindness and how he was led into Damascus and had to wait 
to meet Cornelius. Don't you think he remembered that? And don't you think he said, this same thing can happen to you? I think that's why, this is my theory, I think that's why the Spirit gives the detail. Look at it in verse 11 at the end. Paul says, you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. I wonder if that's why the Spirit says this blindness was temporary, because maybe Elymas' heart was going to be changed too. But there's no doubt from verse 12 that Sergius Paulus trusted Christ. Here are people whose hearts have, been, have, have had the light turned on. Now they fully understand the greatness of God and the grace of God. And they all have an assignment. Paul and Barnabas, you have an assignment. Leave Antioch, go to Cyprus, walk the island. Go from Salamis to Paphos. Just, just go straight across. There are people that need to hear the gospel. Go into the synagogues and talk to the Jews. Talk to the Gentiles along the way. You have a job. Sergius Paulus, even though we don't see it, he has an assignment too. How do you know that, Paul? Well, he can't love the Lord and be the Roman governor he was before, right? He can't go back and be the same guy that he was before because how many know when you get saved, your life's different? Your mind's different. Your attitude's different. Your priorities are different. Everything's different. So while he's going to keep his job, God's going to give his a new, him a new assignment. God released them from what they were doing, and he set them apart for the work of ministry. And that requires waiting and dependence and more listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I don't. Maybe this morning you don't sense that calling. Maybe you don't feel very set apart, and you've very little expectation that God's calling you to something unique. I'm telling you, as a believer, if you trust in Jesus Christ this morning, God has an assignment for you. And tonight, we're going to study about hearing from the Lord and how we respond. But let's start with this question. What does God want to release you from, and what does he want to release you to? Before you can be released to, you've got to be released from. And the biggest thing that will hold you and I back from serving the Lord and being on assignment for the Lord is sin. It keeps us from knowing the presence and the leading of the Lord. So that's where it starts. Are you holding on to sin this morning? Is it like Linus's security blanket to you? You just, you just can't let it go. You're just kind of clutching it because it's, it's safe. You're not wanting to release it to the Lord and be free of its grip. Listen, if you don't, not only will you live in chronic disillusionment and a lack of joy, but you won't be able to discern what the Lord wants for you. You declare the name of the Lord this morning, you need to get away from sin. I declare the name of the Lord this morning, and guess what? I need to get away from sin. Every day, every hour, every minute, resisting the temptation, living a sanctified life, having a renewed mind, avoiding what will corrupt us. Every single moment of every single day, that is our job. And once God works that work of grace in our lives, and once we're released from that sin, he releases us to something. Two months earlier, Paul could not have fathomed as he was persecuting believers that in a span of two months, he would be on a boat headed to Cyprus as the lead evangelist for the Gentiles. He could not have seen that in a million years. And yet here he is. Because once the light comes on, it's time to go. And that means our hearts need to be set apart and we need to be ready 
to be used by the Lord and to see lives transformed before our eyes. I don't know what your assignment is this morning. I'm still discerning the assignments of my own life. But God will give them to us if we're open to them. Let's close our eyes. Let me just take a moment, just be very quiet before the Lord right now. Let me just take a moment. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't, you don't sense that calling. You don't sense that assignment from the Lord. My first challenge to you as your brother in the Lord is check your life for sin because sin will always inhibit. I don't say that judgmentally. I've got my own sin in my life that I need to be cleansed from every day. But if you're holding on to sin, it's going to stop you from hearing the voice of the Lord. So I would encourage you right there where you sit between you and the Lord to confess that to Him and ask Him to deliver it from your life. The Bible says when we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God can deliver you from the bondage of that chronic sin this morning. And I would encourage and challenge you to do that. And then as we become clean before the Lord, He's going to give us an assignment. We know the overall assignment. That's a huge one. To evangelize and make disciples. But God is also putting you in specific places where you can be used in powerful ways to stand for Him and to tell people about the hope of the gospel. And maybe this morning you've been resisting that. You know it. You hear it. You know in your heart and in your mind that that's what the Spirit's calling you to. But you're just not, you're not doing it. God can use every one of us in the same kind of powerful way that he used Paul and Barnabas. They're not any different from us. So I want to encourage you over the next week to seek the Lord. Lord, what are you calling me to? How can I serve you? Lord, break down the resistance in my heart to what I know you've been putting on my heart to do. Father, we thank you that you're a gracious God. And Lord, I don't understand why you are, but I thank you that you are patient and that you're compassionate and that you're kind, that you're slow to anger with us because, Lord, I'm sure we inspire a lot of anger. But we thank you that your desire is to make us holy like you. And Lord, I pray throughout this room this morning and I pray in my own life that we would hear your voice and that we would hear that assignment that you're giving to us. And Lord, we will respond. It had to be hard for Paul and Barnabas to leave. And yet you had a work ahead of them. Lord, you have a work ahead of us individually and as a church. So Lord, make us compliant, make us ready to serve you. And Lord, you're going to work in powerful ways in our midst. I know you are. We're going to see lives transformed as we follow your leading. So give us hearts that are open and hearts that are ready. Lord, right now I pray against any resistance in this room that the enemy is throwing in our, our minds. 
I pray that you would convince the person that's hearing those doubts that those are lies. That we would trust in you. You've never failed us. You've always been faithful. And you always will be. So Lord, we put our hope and our confidence in you. Use us in a mighty way, we pray. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for what you have done and what you're about to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.